0: What if our gifting and faith tradition are at odds? Find out how Asher Love handles this dilemma on this episode, where we discuss how he stayed true to both his art and his faith and sought a third way, a way fraught with anguish but filled with truth born from love. Welcome to fiction that forms us, stories that inspire us, and practices that help us change a podcast where we explore life-changing stories with characters whose journeys give us a vision for a better way of life. Through God's invitation and grace to practice spiritual disciplines, we can journey toward becoming fully human like Jesus as we live in the kingdom of God in the here and now. I'm your host, Christy Lahoda, and today we'll be discussing the character Asher Lev from the book My Name is Asher Lev by Hein Potok. Asher is a painter who is caught between the Ladover Hasidic Jewish worldview of his people and pursuing his artistic gifting. He manages to stay true to both, but there is a cost. I'm joined by my new friend, Amy Beck Lee. She is a member artist of the Anselm Society Arts Guild, a founding member of the Cultivating Project, and a contributing writer at the Rabbit Room. Amy is one of the most insightful people with whom I've crossed paths. She is a gifted writer and a brilliant speaker, as you will soon hear. Amy, thank you for being on Fiction That Forms Us. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. It's good to have you. It's good to be here. I guess we can talk about how we met. I went to Hutchmoot 2019, which the Rabbit Room puts on in Franklin, Tennessee. And that's where we met. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure if someone introduced us or how we ended up talking, but you were very friendly and I was very grateful.
1: Oh, it's very kind. I I think I felt kind of out of my element, too, because it was my first hutchmute. I think we just ended up sitting next to each other in the sanctuary at some point.
0: It was my Um. first hutchmute, too. Have you been back since? I went uh, last year. Okay, the one, the only one that they've had since because of COVID um, in person. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And you have a new book coming out soon? I do. Um, It's
1: it's supposed to come out around October of this year from B&H Publishing,
0: and the title will be This Homeward Ache." That's amazing. Can you tell us a little bit about what it's about?
1: Yeah, it's about the easiest way might be to explain um, the inconsolable longing that C.S. Lewis often wrote about, that a lot of people have written about, but the inconsolable longing that we sometimes feel as we're getting glimpses of the wholeness um, that is to come, the new creation, and how we can use not use that longing, but live into that longing and help it have it help us live fuller
0: lives, basically. Well, that's beautiful. I think um one thing that I tend to struggle with is just the brokenness of the world. And I have a feeling that what you wrote about is going to come into play here as we talk about the novel we're going to talk about. Yeah, there are some intersecting themes. Very (laughs) cool. Well, I can't wait to read it. And if you are unfamiliar with Amy and her work, she is a phenomenal writer and speaker. And you should go look that up when it comes out. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay, so before we get into this podcast's novel and character, can you tell us a little bit about your history with books and your favorite genre?
1: Yeah, I would be glad to. Um, my background with books, I mean, is probably the same as for many people who ended up loving to read. I just started early, was given a lot of freedom in terms of books to choose. I guess something that helped was that my parents... Uh, always encouraged me to read. And even though we were on a poor graduate student's budget for a lot of my childhood, and then, you know, uh, we had to restrict our budget in other areas. I remember being given a lot of freedom when the Scholastic Book Orders came home. And so um, I got to pick out the titles that sounded interesting. And so that kind of was my journey through childhood, usually with a book in hand. Um And then as I grew, I think I loved thinking about them on deeper levels. And eventually that led to um, studying literature in college and grad school. Um, As for favorite genre, um, I don't, I've been thinking about this, but I don't think I have one. I've just been so surprised by books from different genres and whether they're fiction or nonfiction, when they're well written and the story is well told. I just, I've, I think I've now come to accept that it's possible to be surprised from any angle. So I guess I either have a lot or just have been able to decide on a favorite genre.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Okay. Well, can you tell us what book we're going to be talking about and the character that we're focusing on? Sure. We're going to be talking about My Name is Asher Lev today
1: by um, Hein Potok. And it is one of two books with this
0: uh, central character, Asher Lev, who is an artist. And this is the first novel in the first. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, can you take us through a a brief synopsis of the story?
1: Yes. I'm going to try to keep this as brief as possible.
0: Um, It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot in this, in this novel, isn't there? I mean, sometimes it seems like there isn't, but, but Mm -hmm. there is. Yes. And I think
1: part of, The reason why I keep wanting to add more detail to the synopsis is that there's so much in this book that is nuanced and it's the experience of walking with the character that is the meat of the book, Mm -hmm. the actual experience of the book. So just to start off on that note, one thing that I noticed this time around as I was reading it that I want to point out that the author does is uh, he keeps doing these little repetitions of things, details or things that occur in the plot that are like bar lines to me, like from a piece of music, Hmm. the bar lines that are on either end of a measure. And I think to me, those little things, as you keep revisiting them, those are the things by which you keep time and you notice what has gone on in between them. Like, um, we'll mention this in a second, but like the dreams that Asher has of his mythic ancestor. But then there are also, I think, repetitive themes that grow, like musical themes, so that every time you see that particular theme cropping up again, something has been added to it. And there's some revelation or meaning that unfolds as the story goes. Hmm. So I just wanted to mention that from the get-go because I've been really impacted by it this time around. But to begin with, Asher, um, my name is Asher Lev, starts with, it actually starts with the voice of the artist himself, the main character himself. He's introducing himself. And this is something that I forget as I start to go through the novel, but he is putting up a defense for a piece of artwork that he's done for the reputation that he has now. And he says that so quickly. um, I think it just passes out of your memory very quickly, but he, that's how he starts by introducing himself. And, and then he introduces the family that he comes from. And it, this is so key to the plot because both of those threads are going to be what intersect with each other, what conflict with each other as the plot progresses. But Asher is a little boy in the beginning, growing up in Brooklyn around the 1950s, and he likes to draw and eventually he'll learn to paint. But even as he draws, it's it becomes clear very quickly that he's a genius, that he can do things with his drawings, that he sees the world in a unique way and is able to depict it in a certain way. And interspersed with the development of that artistic gift is also personal trauma Because um, his father is, uh, well, Asher is in an Orthodox Jewish family in in a Hasidic community. And so his father travels for the Rebbe, who is the leader of their community. And then as he's doing that, at some point, his mother's brother, who is kind of going about the same work, he dies in a car accident. And his mother has a breakdown, which really heavily uh, affects Asher. And then his mother, as she recovers from the breakdown, she finds purpose in finishing her brother's work and assisting his father, Asher's father, in establishing uh, yeshivas or, or Jewish Torah schools throughout Europe, especially with refugees from Russia. And then one of the threads that you start to see is that after his mother loses her brother, she is both by turns enraged and paralyzed by her fear that somebody that she loves is going to die when she's not looking or when she's not there with them and she's constantly waiting you know to hear if they to see if they've returned home safely to see if they've you know reached their trip destination safely and so every trip that her her, that his father takes every trip that asher later takes is a trigger for her and every occurrence of her fear is a trigger for asher because he remembers how his world crumbled when she had that breakdown And so, um, just winding back to this point in his childhood, though, right after she's had the breakdown and she's starting to try to finish her education so that she can also uh, complete her brother's work, his father gets promoted. And so, he's basically commissioned by the Rebbe to travel to Europe and he wants to take his family with him. But Asher is adamant that he cannot go, he cannot leave his street in Brooklyn. And this is one of those themes that keeps unfolding. And I think it works very much like real human life where we keep reacting the same way to something and we don't know exactly why until one day it gradually dawns on us where the cause of that reaction is seated. And so his mother stays with him while his father goes to Europe, but it costs her that suffering, you know, of being uncertain about how uh, the people that she loves or this person that she loves is doing. And so Asher grows and he's continuing to attend yeshiva. He's continuing to, he's he's doing really poorly in a lot of his classes because he's much more interested in developing his art, much more interested in exploring, you know, things with charcoal or pencil or paint. But as he grows, he and his father are continually at odds about his art because his father views it very much as a frivolity. And this is not what you should be concentrating on children draw drawings you should be concentrating on your studies and getting ready to actually contribute something to the world. And meanwhile, Asher just keeps being drawn back to the art. He can't help making it. Um, There are actually, I think, a number of dissociative episodes where he creates pieces of art and doesn't know that he's doing it and doesn't know what to do with the fact that he's created, you know, whatever piece of art it is. Sometimes it's in the pages of his textbooks at school <laughs> or sacred texts at school. And he steps back and he's, you know, as shocked about it as anybody else. But the thing that he's really trying to suss out as he's growing up is whether or not this gift is a gift from the master of the universe or from this what he says is the citra which is the other side. And um, the other side doesn't really get fully def- defined until halfway through the book. But if I could just read this quote. It sure. says, um, the other side, the realm of darkness and evil given life by God, not out of his true desire, but in the manner of one who reluctantly throws something over his shoulder to an enemy, thereby making it possible for God to punish the wicked who help the sitra akra and reward the righteous who subjugate it. So it's like a source of evil and ugliness. It's something that were it were this gift, something from the other side, you would not want to indulge, you would not want to cultivate So anyway, this tension between Asher and his father weaves in and out throughout this book. And at one point, his father decides it must be from the other side. And he determines to fight it. Asher's got to focus on his studies. He demands that he cease. But I think Asher's own journey is probably the central thread of the book. So when he's young, his art serves as an honest reflection for others. And there's these wonderful scenes where... Um, he'll draw his mother, and his mother says, "What's that on my face?" You know, and and then she realizes Asher has very honestly gone and drawn the perspiration that forms on her upper lip when it's humid and hot outside in a New York summer. And there's also a moment where he draws his father um, angry on the phone, and it's like he sees these things happening. Then he'll go home and he'll draw these moments, and then when his father sees it, he goes. He realizes that's what he looks like, that his emotion was written all over his face. And so it's a gift and others acknowledge it as he grows. He also processes the grief and the hardship that he feels through art because it's more than expression. It's He's not trying to state something with his art. It's I think for him, often a, an arena of exploration where he comes to discover what lies at the heart of certain events or griefs for him. And so he keeps having this um, tug of war with his gift as he grows, because he doesn't know what to do with it initially. He lets it go dormant for a while, and then it kind of comes back of its own accord, because he, he, um, he finds himself sketching a picture of Stalin lying in his coffin randomly. Mainly, I think you see that conflict going on inside him, and he's angry that he has it. He's keenly aware that the people he loves might be hurt by it because nobody understands around him why it's so important for him to have this avenue of communication or of processing. And the people around him are aware of it too. He keeps being warned that it will be exceedingly difficult to enter the world of being an actual artist as a Jew who wishes to hold on to his faith, because he's not willing to give up that connection to his people either. Meanwhile, So I've talked about the tension between him and his father. His mother is really caught between these two differing viewpoints. And at the request and the arrangement of the Rebbe, Asher ends up apprenticing under a famous artist and he grows under his tutelage. And um, some of the training involves things that he balks at, at, at first, like painting nudes and looking at paintings of crucifixions. But his mentor makes him do those things. And he, in his own way, Asher in his own way, comes to understand that his mentor is telling him he needs to know the tradition of the art that he wants to practice. Mm -hmm. So he learns that and he starts to excel at that too. And then he becomes known as the Brooklyn prodigy or an artist in his own right. And this whole time, he continues to be an observant Jew. So then towards the end of the book, his father returns from Europe and his mother in the meantime has gone to live with him there while Asher's being mentored. And they try, I think for his mother's sake, they try to have a conversation about his art and why it matters to Asher. And they fail because their fundamental attitude regarding what is a meaningful contribution to the world are so different that his father, he just, he sees himself losing his father as he's talking about, you know, technical things about art. And he really Um, tried, didn't he? He tried for several days to explain. Yes. Yes. And I think that really takes a lot out of him. Yeah. And so at the end of it, he, decides he asks his his parents if he can go to Europe and I feel like that's a huge turning point because all the all the while he's been talking about needing to be near his street and needing to figure things out but here he's you know at the end of his rope he's finally going to Europe his father is enthusiastic about it um and so he goes to Europe and while he's there he tours the works of the masters like uh, Michelangelo's Pieta and David and they impact him so much that he can't draw them at first, which is what he's, you know, he's done all this time and what he's supposed to do. May I read this one quote from that section? Sure. Because it I feel like it's so important to his development. But he he talks about viewing the Pieta and then he says, I was an observant Jew. Yet that block of stone moved through me like a cry, like the call of seagulls over morning surf, like like the echoing blasts of the shofar sounded by the Rebbe. I do not mean to blaspheme. My frames of reference have been formed by the life I have lived. I do not know how a devout Christian reacts to that Pieta. I was only able to relate it to elements in my own lived past. When I came back out into the brightness of that crowded square, I was astonished to discover that my eyes were wet. Hmm. So... Yeah, I feel like that gives voice to so much of the nuance and the things that he's trying to balance and straddle as he's growing. Anyway, he eventually decides to stay in Paris for a year or two, and then he finds himself standing in a room in front of a bunch of blank white canvases. And that's where he finally faces the truth about who he is. And there's a wonderful quote about how he had painted his visible street and until there was nothing left of it for him to put on canvas. And now he's going to have to paint the street that cannot be seen. So he's going to have to face who he is, the ancestors that he comes from, the trauma of his own life. And what he ends up beholding most clearly is the anguish of his mother. And there have been dichotomies all along in the book. He sees how she both held and was torn by the dichotomy of her husband and her son. And then he knows the painting that, to follow the reasoning and the line of this book, is asking to be born. So he paints a painting which has subtle symbolism at first of his mother waiting at the window with telephone poles kind of in, and I don't remember if they're in the background or foreground or in the reflection, but they're, they're there and they're gesturing to her suffering. But he looks at that painting and he says, this is incomplete. And he feels that it's incompleteness is deceitful. Mm. And so then he paints another painting for her And I don't know if we want to go into the details of that painting, but basically he paints this painting that is the culmination of everything that he has lived up until that point. And then he has to deal with the fallout. And it's not a, and I think one of the things that troubled me about the book the first time I read it and something that actually comforts me now is that it's not a clean pet answer with a clean resolution at the end of this book. But anyway, there's Mm. my synopsis. (laughs) That's a really
0: good point because the ending disturbed me the first time I read through it because I I was wanting more. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But then when I would think about how it ended, I thought, could it have really ended any other way? Yeah. I mean, you know, he's trying to give birth on canvas to all the pain or get out Mm -hmm. the pain that he has suffered all his life. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, he says that he didn't know another way to do it. Yes. Well,
1: I, and I think he also says that there were no forms into which he could pour that empathy and that suffering. There was no like mode of communication available to him. Yeah. So that's why he had to use this one. Yeah. Which I think is profound. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, to avoid spoilers, we won't say what happened like at the end the way everything went down but the it culminated in that painting Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and it was profound and it was haunting yeah amy i i really felt like this novel and the sequel was just a very haunting um beautiful beautifully haunting work yeah i'm
1: grateful that both of them exist. I'm actually looking forward to doing a rereading of the sequel soon too. But every time I read, and I I say that like I've read them a ton of times, this was actually my second time around. um, And I read both books a few years ago. But there's a depth to what Hotak is willing to wrestle with and depict in the simplest of words. He doesn't use a lot of there's there's not a lot of variation in his adjectives or nouns in his descriptions and so much of the environment, the way that Asher is describing the weather or, you know, how it feels out on the street. There's so much repetition and the words themselves are simple, mm. but he uses them as building blocks to express the repetition of trauma and of growth and, yeah, of really of wrestling with these difficult things that we all I think have some measure of in our own lives. And I, I feel like I always come away having been given permission to look more deeply into those areas in my own life. Mm. And
0: so I'm grateful for that. So Potok was a Jewish rabbi,
1: correct? I, I believe so. I think he was um, also a chaplain during the Korean War.
0: Okay, a Jewish chaplain. Mm-hmm. Yeah it's interesting to me that he does seem to be processing the unknowns of his faith in this Mm -hmm. book. Wouldn't you say? I mean, I haven't, I haven't read anything about, you know, his thoughts on what he wrote. um, (laughs) But I just wondered as I was reading through it, if, if that's, if it was him processing through, you know, just the hard mysteries yeah. I don't know. It's a question.
1: Yeah. I I don't know that much about his life myself, but the little bit that I have read, I think he talks about having served as a chaplain in the war and how that completely just blew up everything that he, uh, I guess, had held in a more cohesive manner in terms of a worldview hmm. before that point in his life. So I don't know that it was, I don't, I wouldn't say that it went to pieces afterward, the way that he looked at the world, but I think a lot of the, again, nuance and the compassion and the, the depth that we see in this story and a lot of his successive stories is reflective of that, hmm. that period in his life, the things that he's experienced. War is just a continuing theme, I feel like, and suffering and personal trauma. And um, I've always been curious myself how his community, his family, his friends, received the writing of this book you know almost like asher's impact on his family and as far as i could gather i haven't been able to find too much on that either um Mm -hmm. and not to say that i have researched extensively but i think he did say at some point that it was very hard um and that he paid a high price for having written it Hmm. but he felt like he had to be honest
0: do you know if he was hasidic i believe he
1: started out that way i could be wrong I don't know like what the trajectory of his journey was at all, but I know that Asher Lev is supposed to be semi or was semi-autobiographical. Okay. And so wow. uh, the theme that I see of Asher wanting to maintain that connection to his community and to still be faithful to the um, the faith that he holds, I feel like that must be a key piece of Potox on life, but again. I'm not an expert. So I don't know how to. Yeah.
0: Well, if you're curious friends, look it up because yes, please. Yeah, I (laughs) I should have. But um, it's just something that I was thinking about now. But processing Mm -hmm. the, the novel has taken a while too, I think. Yes. Um, Okay, there's several things I want to get into. But I am curious to see where we're going with this first. So. Mm -hmm. um, So I'm curious what in particular about the novel and Asher Love was inspirational to you?
1: Well, I've already mentioned, I think, the permission given to uh, look at suffering and to... And also, well, I'm going to get into this, but the intersection where that kind of plumbing of the depths meets art Mm -hmm. and the notion of art as responsibility and not just gift, this is not... The kind of novel I would have picked to uphold, you know, the protagonist and say, this is who I want to be like, I really feel like Asher is, he's, he's working through so much. And I don't know that I would hold up him up as the paragon of anything. But it's his life. It's the life that he's living. And in some ways, um, it's the life that he's forced to live, that I think I find particularly inspiring in the sense of not like uplifting all the time, but inspiring in terms of getting me going in terms of development and thought. So, but one of the things I do admire about Asher is a conversation that he has halfway through the book. I think when he meets, when he first meets his mentor and his mentor asks him, Why? Why are you creating art? Why? It, this is going to cost you. The world will kill you over this you will not survive. I mean, he's doing everything that he can to dissuade
0: Asher as an Orthodox Jew from entering the world of professional art. He said, become a carpenter. And then he was basically like, become anything but an artist. Yes,
1: yes. But Asher replies that, he says, I believe it is man's task to make life holy. And that was so striking to me that after everything that he's been working through and even trying to discern where his gift comes from, He, you know, this kind of comes in the middle of a creed almost that he's reciting to the art gallery owner, I think. But he has a desire to put holiness into the world with his work. And I do think that is admirable. So that's one of the key things that stands out to me.
0: That is beautiful. There is a point where Asher asks his mentor, Jacob Kahn, why Asher's father hates him. And Kahn says, Mm -hmm. he thinks you're wasting your life. He thinks you have betrayed him. And then later he says, You and your father are two different natures. Yes. And then um Asher comments that the Rebbe isn't angry because the Rebbe has been blessing him. Yes. He you know, he wants him to to stay holy, right? Not paint mm-hmm. nudes, but he's been blessing his gift. Mm-hmm. And Khan says that the Rebbe is of a different nature than Asher's father. And Khan says, do not try to understand, become a great artist. That is the only way to justify what you are doing to everyone's life. (laughs) So that's kind of later in the story. Well, actually, no, he says it several times because the whole time that he continues with art and art has been something that, you know, you mentioned that he... He kind of he doesn't know that he's working on it sometimes, so it's mm-hmm. just it's part of him. You know, we mentioned, and he actually even says in the beginning of the book, he says it is a gift, mm-hmm. um, his art, and and so it's just part of who he is. So even if he's not supposed to draw, he his hands still move. You know, he's drawing wow. in his mind, and he doesn't know what his hands are doing. There, it's mm-hmm. just an automatic response, and so. So through the book, his father kind of has been fighting him, right? You mentioned that. And so Khan tells him that, that he must become a great artist in order to, to make it worth what he's been doing.
1: Yeah, there are a few things that Jacob Khan says that I had a lot of hums in my margin as I was thinking through this. There are a few things that he says that I disagree with, but that I want to ponder. And I think that's one of them because he does say more than once If you're going to cause this much suffering, then become a great artist because that's the only way you're going to validate that suffering. And Asher does. I was thinking about, I think it's Jonathan Rogers who talks about viewing stories in terms of having a desire, choice, and consequences model. So Mm -hmm. even if you're taking a a story that um, doesn't have a neat ending or a neat arc, a lot of times you can learn a lot just from looking at the desire of the character what choices it leads to, and then the consequences that come out of that choice that can often tell us about the validity or the wisdom of the choices that were made. Hmm. This is a tricky question, I feel like, for this novel, because if you follow that, if you look at the novel through the lens of that model, it doesn't exactly equal out in the end. You're not really left. I feel like I don't actually know if Asher made the right choice at the end because Asher makes the choice to create the art that causes turmoil. And he also, there's, it's a two stage decision because he creates it. Then he has to decide whether or not to make it public. And he does make it public. Mm. That's a separate choice. I feel like, but you know, one that depends upon the first and even there, you're not given any certainty as to whether or not that was the right choice. And especially if you look at the consequences and the fallout that happens, It might be very tempting to say, well, that was the worst choice of his life, but that's not given either. So I'm not sure that what Jacob Cotton says about becoming a great artist does equal out the suffering that you might cause. I think Asher is far more conscious of that towards the end, that he may need to use all the other faculties and powers of his life to balance out this suffering that he almost has had to cause Anyway, so
0: mm.
1: it's a very complex thing to consider.
0: So you had mentioned that he painted his mom in the window, but it was incomplete. Mm-hmm. And he said, he said that no one would have known and mm-hmm. that maybe Khan and a few others um, would have sensed its incompleteness, but, but Asher would have known. Mm-hmm. And, he's, and even they would have said that it was still a good painting. Right, right. Yeah. And he said that it would have made it easier to leave future work incomplete. It would have made it more and more difficult to draw upon that additional aching surge of effort that is always the difference between integrity and deceit in a created work. So because Khan had said that (laughs) if he's deceitful with his art, if he doesn't paint what is within him, then he would have known and it would have impacted his future work Mm -hmm. as an artist. Yeah, yeah. Well, so can we talk a little bit about the community and the art and how his Hasidic community, they have artists, but they paint calendars and mm-hmm. things that Asher says is not art. Mm-hmm. So it seems that his community has, I mean, they have lawyers, they have the whole gamut of people in, in you know, many different professions and mm-hmm. And yet, a fine artist seems like it's a big no-no. Yeah, I would say that, I would venture to say
1: there are parallels between that community and some of the Christian communities I've grown up in or encountered. That you have people, essentially, who are asking the artists, why can't you just paint pretty pictures?
0: I think that it it really impacts him because he's not really accepted into the community. And yet one thing that really impacted me in reading this was that he remained true to his faith yes. pretty much every yeah. aspect. I know he continued in the community, even though mm. he was kind of shunned by his classmates and, and he made, he remained true to it and he remained true to his gift and to bringing to birthing art. And, you know, I wonder if there's there's something that we can take from that, because as you mentioned, um, there are Christian communities that don't value art. And I even had a woman recently tell me that I forget if it was if she was talking about in the summer or what, but she had mentioned that she wouldn't let her son play video games or read fiction, I guess only nonfiction. And part of me died when she said I wouldn't let him read fiction because i I feel like so much is Mm -hmm. there's just so much to be gained from reading fiction. Um, Your Mm -hmm. imagination expands and it just, I don't know, my fiction informs my faith. And I guess that's why I have this podcast. Yeah. You know, it helps to inform my faith. It's not the only thing. But I'm curious about how we can kind of remain true to to art. And how did how do you think Asher stuck with his art, despite his community, you know, really not supporting him at all. And even his dad, his mom supported him, but she she was towing that line of balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the best way I can sum it up is that
1: it's so difficult. And I think it's supposed to be difficult. Hmm. So I'm so glad that this podcast exists. I'm so glad that you're doing this. Thank you. And showing like, all of the different you know, angles and really getting down deep into the work of fiction. And that breaks my heart, too. I will say I have two children and there is plenty of fiction that they are not allowed to read yet. (laughs) Um, There's also plenty of nonfiction. I guess we don't really think about that. But, you know, there's also plenty of nonfiction that I wouldn't give them right now either. There are certain ages that are appropriate to introduce certain themes and those ages are going to be different per family. But I feel like to live a life deprived of fiction not because, I mean, that, that takes a certain viewpoint of fiction to say that it's frivolity. It's like a foray into just imaginative exercises that aren't really essential to being human.
0: Well, but, and can I interject real quick? Yeah. I, I don't think she meant, I don't know that she meant forever, but she has told me that she's not really interested in fiction. Um, but, I, you know, I don't think she's the only one. I think that many Christians tend to, Focus more on non Christian nonfiction than, yeah. and, and I mean, I don't know what this says about Christian fiction. So I'm not just talking about Christian fiction, but just fiction in general. Mm-hmm. But yeah, sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, not at all. Um, yeah, and I don't, so I'm not saying that that's unreasonable at all. I'm, I think there's a sorrow in encountering that viewpoint because of what fiction can do, which I feel like one of the most salient. Beneficial giftings of fiction is that it increases the capacity of our souls to be able to understand stories outside of ourselves. There are a lot of things in fiction that you will not find in nonfiction. And something that's really essential to that experience is the experience of walking in somebody else's shoes. You don't get that a lot in nonfiction, but because of nonfiction facts and things have to be told. I mean, even in narrative nonfiction, though, you've got the elements of fiction coming in to tell a story. But fiction, yes, the more that I look at what fiction has done for me, um, but also what I see it doing in communities and as people get together to discuss books or to share the background of a certain book. if If you meet a kindred spirit who has loved the same books that you do, it's almost like finding somebody who has who is giving you keywords for the empathy that they've been able to feel for the journeys that they've been through, that they've been transformed by. And now you have a common language that you can share with them. And you understand that when your words are spoken to them, when your story is being spoken to them, it's being received in a certain pool, almost, or like, um, in a house, right, of welcome. Hmm. And you know that there are many rooms in that house that are able to understand certain dimensions that you may not even be able to express. I could probably keep going on with that, but I feel like in some ways, that's what happened with um, the friends that I found in college, um, the man and I that I ended up marrying. We've been 15 years married now, and I'm just starting to realize how thankful I am that we have certain common elements in our background that have made it so that I don't need to explain certain things. He gets it. Hmm. because there are some things that are just inherent to certain life struggles that shape you that you don't even have words for. But to meet somebody who shares that gives you a safe landing place to be understood and to grow and to learn how to heal from the things that need to be healed. And so I feel like great books do that, including fiction. We were talking about fiction in terms of art and and Asher's what is being asked of Asher. Mm. In terms of going, you know, forward in the area of art and also continuing as a member of his community, right? And I said that it should be difficult. I feel like this is one of the areas of life where God does the refining work in us. That in the wrestling that we have to do with the traditions that we're asked to study and to hold in our vocations and the fundamentals of faith that we are given can Can you rely on him? Can you learn to walk with him in both of these things? And obviously, I am now transposing this onto um, my view of the world as a Christian. But I think that's what's so beautiful about the writing of this story and how Asher's development unfolds. It's not neat. There are many times when he thinks this gift must be something from the other side. Mm -hmm. This is not something I should indulge, you know. This is something that I should bury. And then there are times when he just almost, you know, he just doggedly bulldozes ahead with it because it's like he can't help discovering what the paints can do, discovering how to, you know, depict lines in a certain way. And uh, I think one thing we haven't mentioned yet is when he gets to the end of this book, he says, Asherlev, Hasid, Asherlev, painter. And he looks at his right hand and he says, there was power in that hand, power to create and destroy, power to bring pleasure and pain, power to amuse and horrify. There was in that hand the demonic and the divine at one and the same time. They were two aspects of the same force. Creation was demonic and divine. Art was demonic and divine. Asher Lev was the son of the master of the universe and the other side. And I feel like that is a comprehensive Summation of everything that's going on through the book. And it's also a rightful pronouncement on ourselves. That's not, it's not to say that God is not omnipotent or not sovereign, but we also are in a world very much at odds with ourselves and the charge that we've been given between our identity as Christians and the fact that we are still humans who are going to struggle with temptation, with sin and with the follies of our own thinking and all the, the poor choices that we make because we we haven't been able to deal with things from our own past. That's going to last until the very, you know, end of our lives, but it's, and it's both. (laughs) And we're going to have to make a lot of choices out of it. And that part where Asher realizes that he is both, He has, you know, he has this imagining where this ancestor that he's been dreaming about, this whole book, comes to him and says, paint the anguish of the world. Let the Mm -hmm. people see the pain. Let people see the pain. But create your own molds and your own play of forms for the pain. Because this is why he ends up in this whole mess at the end. There has been no form given to him through the community that he's grown up in to depict this anguish. It's like there's no, it's almost like there was no word given to him to express that anguish but that anguish has to be acknowledged if he didn't paint this painting i mean there's a lot of ifs but the fact that he painted this painting means that he gave voice to it in some way there was an acknowledgement for it but he had to do it in a form that was foreign to his faith because and and anathema to his faith because there was no form given to him in his own tradition and that actually makes me think of a poem by Ann Porter where she's talking about a transcendent moment, but she talks about the need for an altogether different language for us to voice things. And I think there are some things beyond the realm of what we have been given in the easy traditions of our communities that we need an altogether different language for. Hmm. And that is going to require extreme bravery and oftentimes extreme sacrifice on the part of the people who are called to depict it or write about it or embrace it in some way, to find that altogether different language, to establish it and to be able to use that to contribute to our understanding of what it means to be human, but also what it means to be a a person of faith, um, and also what it means to um, live a full life without living in denial of the threads that we're being given to live.
0: All I have to say is, wow. Wow. You had said that suffering is is part of it. How can we be true to what we are being called to do, even though it's painful and it takes risk and vulnerability and suffering and that it's just part of it? It's, I think that's a,
1: a major part of it right there. What you just said, um, the acknowledgement that it's going to involve hardship, that I think we have this dream sometimes of people being successful in their fields. I don't know why it, it probably stands out to me more because of the communities that I'm in, but it's like, we have this wish dream that if you're successful, if God has blessed what you are supposed to do, it's not going to involve difficulty. All it requires is you being faithful and that book will get published or that art will find a show or you'll get your agent in some field.
0: Um, Amy, I just posted about this saying that I wish something came easily to me. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like you're um, (laughs) answering my post right here. (laughs) Well, it's something that I struggle with, too. But I know you're right, though. You're so right. I wish I wasn't.
1: (laughs) So Asher, you know, the point at which he's being warned not to enter the professional art world Mm -hmm. over and over again by his parents, by the Rebbe, by Jacob Kahn himself, because they know what it's going to cost him. Mm -hmm. Um, It is not so different from us. There is an element of, if you are going to serve the world in any way, and that includes people who are younger in your faith than you, that involves, oh, there was this quote, I think that Jacob tells him when he. I'm looking for that one too. Yeah, he says, uh, Jacob is talking about the world that he wants to enter. And he says, this is the world you want to make sacred. You had better learn it well first before you begin. Yes. He's telling him he has to get to know. It. And it's so, that is so true. I mean, you can grow up in a bubble. I mean, I, again, I'm transposing this onto Christian faith, but like you can grow up in a bubble where you are safe, where you are, you know, you're given wonderful stories to read. You're given a wonderful childhood um, and your faith flourishes, and it, it, it's essentially a greenhouse, right? It's You're in protected, in a protected space from the elements. But once you are dealing with a world of brokenness, which is what we live in, and you're dealing with all the different fragments and shards of how that brokenness manifests itself, I think there is a certain amount of us being asked to enter into the brokenness that often impose itself upon us before we're even aware, but also knowingly entering into the acknowledgement of it. um, And the engagement often with people who are broken, I mean, and, and realizing also that of course we're broken too as we do that. But I feel like that is a path we are asked to follow right behind the footsteps of our savior, who became human for our sakes, who entered into the world. And no, he did not become like the world but he was definitely in it Mm -hmm. and they got to crucify him. You know, we crucified him. And if we're going to follow him down that path, I feel like much of what we're asked to do, especially in our vocations and vocations can change, but much of what we're asked to do is to be that vulnerable. And if we're taking up our vocations responsibly, right? has charges that are given to us from the Lord. And I love this, that there are, se- there are several points actually throughout this book where different characters acknowledge it may not be a gift that's specifically from the master of the universe or specifically from the other side. It may be that we're given these gifts, but it's what we do with them yes. that makes them property of the master of the universe or not. And I think that's something that Asher is trying to figure out as he goes on. How do you use this gift to make the world holy? How do you steward this? And I feel like for our own vocations, a lot of times we, we too are asked to go deep into the tradition of our vocation. If you want to be a good writer, you cannot just sit and read all the Christian living books on the shelves at Barnes and Noble or at your local bookstore and expect to be a good writer out of that. You have to know the tradition from which your language comes from. Mm-hmm. You have to know the language, the stories, the idioms, the phrases that have been bandied about, but also, you know, come to nestle in our corpus so that you understand how to give voice to certain things so that you know what threads to tug on that will resonate with other people. And then you do the work of your vocation and you hammer out a refined, and I don't mean refined like elegant, I mean refined like something that you have actually had to hammer away at, a refined offering of love. And you open yourself to the world and you give what you have, even though you're doing what Tolkien said is essentially exposing your heart to be shot at. And I think that's one of the um, most encouraging things that I've learned from the writers that I respect, that they are very aware when you are going about your work in the best way that you can and you're delving into the, into the tradition and you are also making something in an offering to people and then offering that in public, you are opening yourself to be shot at. And I, I have a quote from Tish Harrison Warren from Uncommon Ground where she says, writing, she's talking about writing, writing always involves always involves risk. We in our work will receive criti- criticism and critique which is a good albeit painful and essential part of getting at the truth and also of becoming a better writer. But she also says but in this moment in history to state anything at all can unleash not just needed response but vitriol that is unreasonable and ad hominem and at times massive and viral. To write lovingly will inevitably entail with its many joys some wounds and some suffering. If writing is to be an act of love, we will have to extend tolerance and charity to our critics, even those who attack us unfairly. And we're going to be criticized in stereo, but we hone our craft. We learn in time and in community through patient silence, listening and prayer uh, to name the world truthfully, to herald our message clearly and humbly. So Mm. I feel like that's all part of the commission of whatever you're doing, Mm -hmm. really. That has been a huge learning curve for me in the past five to seven years, because I've had the privilege of getting to know artists from different spheres in Christian communities. I think initially, like 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, I too would have said, why don't we just create create pretty pictures? Why don't we just take the cream of the crop and leave out all the rated R stuff and you know just make the world a better place in the way that we can? But I did not realize that something that the artist is called to do is to be honest about the world. If you're going to be truthful about the hope that we hold, you have to be truthful about the brokenness that we
0: hmm. bear. That's a really good point because, I mean, we as Christians, you know, we look at, at the redemption of Jesus, but there would be no need for redemption if there wasn't brokenness. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. You're so right. It's only in acknowledging the brokenness that we begin to have an understanding of just how much we need to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you did not like about Asher? Yeah. Um, <laughs> or maybe you yeah. pare it down <laughs> to like, what are the yeah. one or two things that you didn't like about him? I There wasn't. Asher is so human to me that it's hard to
1: pinpoint, you know, certain characteristics that, you know, certainly I could have done without this because I feel like it is very woven into the tapestry of who he is. Mm -hmm. Like you're presented with this character and you take him wholesale. Maybe because we're, we're very much given all of his background and we're given his childhood and the things that he, he talks very, he's very frank about the limits of his framework,
0: Hmm.
1: but I wish he could have pushed back a little bit harder Against Jacob Kahn, this notion that the only thing that will validate the truth that you have to tell in your art is if you become a great artist. Like I understand what he's saying. I understand that you. Um, it's only by doing so that you gain enough authority to be able to speak to these matters, you know, in a way that maybe helps uh, people regard the world a certain way. But but Kahn's belief that it, in order to be rightful art, it has to be in the public sphere. That's something that. I think I wrestle with on a personal level because I find myself sifting through the same issues sometimes. I still believe that there are some stories that are not mine to share. And a lot of that comes not from just a vague respect of other people's privacy, but it's actually, I I feel like I'm becoming more and more aware that there are details that I am not aware of, you know, in another person's past, in another person's story. So that if the account is, Spelled out its in its entirety at the end of days from the only one who can. There are a lot of details that I do not know about, which means that it would be to my detriment if I tried to tell the story right now hmm. and explain why a person is the way they are.
0: You know, that makes me think of C.S. Lewis's uh, The Horse and His Boy. Hmm. It's when Shasta is questioning something in the girl's life that he's with. Yeah. And Aslan says her story is not your concern. Mm. I don't know. It just made me think of that, That there's so much that we don't know. And so when we question something, as you said, we just don't know all the details or, and we don't know what caused someone to, to think or act a certain way. Yeah. And Khan seemed to, there were a couple of things that he taught him that I was wondering about, you know, mm-hmm.
1: there were moments where I. W- <laughs> I mean, maybe this aligns me with his father, but there were moments along the way where I found myself getting a little frustrated. Like, there's no way you don't know that you're sketching an entire, you know, depiction of Stalin in his coffin or, or the Rebbe in your, you know. Chumash. Chumash. Yeah.
0: <laughs> but. But don't you think he could have gone into the zone? Yeah, like I do. You know, runners have their zones. Uh And when you go into it, you're kind of unaware of everything else. I mean, you cross the street without getting hit by a car and stuff. But but yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah. I I don't know. That's That's kind of how I envisioned it. Yes. (laughs) I think it's just my the limits of my experience having not having not having had that particular experience that makes it difficult for me to understand, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that it's not possible. And it doesn't mean that that's not, you know, a major plot point in somebody else's life that, you know, I was, I was looking at, I recently read Davida's harp by Potok too. um, And she has episodes like that, or at least one episode like that, where she's, you know, it's grief that causes her to become completely unanchored and she does things that she isn't aware of having made a conscious choice to do. But yeah, I think those are maybe some of those moments that I was less able to relate to. But it's a good
0: reminder for me
1: of the humility,
0: I guess. Well, that just goes back to your point about how we don't know people's details. So you know, you said, Well, I don't know, because I haven't experienced that. Yes. And
1: the tables turn really quickly on that one. Because there are so many people that would look at his Asher's mother and say, why can't you just let your family go? Like, what is the big deal? Like go let them have a work trip. Why do you have to stand by the window for hours watching them come? But I know that fear, like that is a fear that I have had at points throughout my life of having for a very specific reason and stemming from, you know, very specific traumatic episodes that I can pinpoint now, but I may not have been able to do years ago that fear of waiting and how Mm -hmm. it just, you do irrational things. Actually, you don't do a lot of irrational things because it just paralyzes you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, then I look at that and I'm so glad that there's a story like this that names it Mm -hmm. because how many hidden fears and how many, you know, post-traumatic clasping powers are there in our lives Mm -hmm. that exist that don't come out unless somebody talks about it this way. I mean, this is another argument for fiction. You can talk about something clinically. You are not likely to reach the person who is most affected by it unless you tell them a story that starts to sing back to them, yes, that is what it tastes like, and that is how it cuts. Mm, So tell me the way out of it now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like telling versus showing in fiction writing, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, you can can effectively tell, but it's well, you can tell it's just not it's not as effective as immersing the reader in the story. Yeah, I think, too. I mean, I know his mom had lost her brother. Mm -hmm. And so that was the big traumatic experience that kind of triggered her to to spend all this time waiting and worrying. Mm -hmm. Um, But don't you think, too, like just being a mom? we're both moms. And I think that there's an element that the that Potok nailed with um, just the fact that she's a mom and, you know, and all that goes into that hopes and dreams and fears for for our children.
1: Yeah. I mean, even that doesn't get acknowledged, I think, nearly as much as it you wish it could be sometimes. No, we're supposed
0: to be strong, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've become weaker mm-hmm. as I've become a mom, like in my emotional, you know, my emotional, um I don't know, not weaker. I mean, it feels like it. I experience it as that, but I know that it's, it's not. It's just um, a tenderness.
1: Mm, I so. love that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But I was shocked to... I guess it'd be about seven, six and a half years ago. Now I had a breakdown and it, it had a lot to do with, you know, that fear of loved ones dying, but um, it had very specific triggers leading up to that point. And a lot of them had, were in the context of motherhood. Hmm. It was around that time that I don't remember how I found out, but I found out from some Red Cross volunteer that in the next district over the number one cause for 911 calls was mothers having panic attacks. Oh, Wow. And I don't even know how to, I still sit with that sometimes. Like there was a certain relief in finding out about that.
0: Yeah, because did also, you just feel like you were kind of alone in right? that?
1: Yeah, sometimes. and But also compassion, hmm. because now you know the depth of how just squeezing that fear can be when you are, you are responsible for another life yeah. in so many different dimensions and aspects. And you don't know that any one of those is going to turn out right. <laughs> and you know, you need the help of God in it. But there are so many little decisions from day to day. I mean, the one that flattens me every time is, do we go to the doctor? Mm. Like once we're at the doctor, I'm fine. If the crisis is big enough, I'm fine. You know, mm-hmm. if it's an apparent emergency, but that sitting right on the line where it is your call and you could get this wrong, man, that is, it is such a difficult decision.
0: How old are but- or two?
1: Mine are now nine and 12. Okay.
0: I yeah. have two 13 year olds and a an 11 year old. So mm-hmm. right around the same ages. I know that was a big fear, especially when they can't tell you, you know, yes. they can't yeah. talk to tell you. Now I'm also seeing the layers of emotional, you know, like yeah, we get wrong, you know, it's not just about feeding our kids and keeping them alive. No. It's, you know, yes. um, which, yeah. you know, I know. I've always known that there was a lot to it. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, just experiencing even more layers now. Yes. in mothering. Yeah. Around the time that I think
1: my first was born, I think there was a commercial on TV. Well, somebody was telling me, you know, like when you give childbirth, something that really helps is to know that you share this pain with women around the world. I really tried to enter into that mindset. It just (laughs) never helped me. (laughs) Like I would just be thinking, okay, it's true, but that just makes this more miserable. Um, But but there was a commercial I feel like that was on around that time. I don't even remember what it it was for, but it was a teenage daughter, you know, like um, having some kind of difficulty and she goes into her room and then her mom comes up the stairs and right before she knocks on the door, like she kind of raises her hand and then she pauses and because she's not, you can see the uncertainty written all over her face, like, is this the right thing to do? Do I go talk to her now? Do I not? And I remember looking at that commercial, and I said that, that is where I feel camaraderie with the other mothers in the world. Because mm. I feel that that is going to be where I run into the most challenge and difficulty.
0: Mm-hmm. You no,
1: know, yeah, just trying to wrap your head around, how do I, what is the right response? What will help you? And maybe it's not the thing that will feel the best in the short term. Maybe it's not, you know, the thing that I don't know that you've read of in a thousand advice columns or whatever, but that was where I felt. Yeah. Solidarity.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And we can see that in Asher's mom, um, how she responds, or I should say mother. He uses the term mother in the book, but Asher always calls her mama and papa, which I thought was really sweet. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she's definitely caught between wanting to help him and help him explore Mm -hmm. his art and, to become who the master of the universe wants him to be, right? Yeah. But also caught between that and the his father not wanting him to do it, not understanding it. A continual refrain. You you know you've mentioned that Potok repeats several things throughout the book, and he says, "I can't reconcile myself to this," and mm. so so the mom is caught out of that love for the, for both of them. Which is, Mm -hmm. it's really endearing and and that is a central focus of the book. And that's what Asher cycles back around to at the end. What do you think we can learn from Asher's, I don't know, would you say he has a transformational journey? I mean, I guess in some ways he does because he explores what he has repressed in the end. But
1: Mm.
0: what, what do you think that we can learn or maybe from his virtues that he has? yeah. Well,
1: so I didn't know if you wanted to to talk to talk about his virtues in terms of like classical virtues or because a a lot of what came to mind for Asher was not, you know, your traditional fortitude or anything like that. But empathy is a huge one for me. I feel like Asher does grow in empathy. The fact that he's able to turn around at the end of his journey and notice not himself, but his mother, Mm -hmm. who has been basically the one holding his worlds together, almost, or you know, she's the point of tension where that is most apparent.
0: And we should say that he kind of, he didn't ignore it as a, as a child growing up, but he, he didn't recognize it. I don't Mm -hmm. think because Mm -hmm. there was a point in time where you mentioned they wanted him to move to Europe, um, to Mm -hmm. Vienna specifically, because that's where Mm -hmm. the Rebbe wanted his family to go. And he kind of had a breakdown and yeah, so they had him looked at and, you know, it was finally decided that, well, the Rebbe gave his parents three choices, um, but mm-hmm. he didn't end up going. Later on, several years later, his mother said that she needed to go, that his father needed her. Mm-hmm. and And he's still, like, crying and, you know, just really don't go. He still didn't want her to go. But then later like a little over a year later i think when they came back for a visit he mm-hmm. could see how much more healthy they both were yeah. and i think it's then that he recognized that that they both really needed that time together mm-hmm. um but before you know it was like their their family was kind of split apart by distance and you know i guess emotionally too but yeah. and he hadn't recognized it so you're right he did grow in empathy for sure yeah I think empathy is a huge
1: one. Thank you for pointing out all those details. It's good to go back in those um in my mind to those two. I think there's a certain fidelity to or a faithfulness that he exhibits when even as he's it would be so easy for him to be swayed, I think at mm-hmm. different points along the journey. You should do this, you should do that. He certainly has no lack of people around him telling him what he should do. But That's there right. are certain core convictions that he has that Really make me like. There's a quote. There's a passage where he is wondering about again whether this gift is from this side or the other, and he's talking to the mashpia um, from the yeshiva, who is like the principal or the headmaster. And the the principal basically tells him, "Asherel, you have a gift." This gift causes you to think only of yourself and your own feelings. No one would care if these were normal times, Asherel. We do not interpret the second commandment the way others do. But these are not normal times. So he's basically telling him, now is the time to focus on your studies. Maybe you shouldn't give yourself to the art so much. But what Asher thinks, he doesn't say it in response. What he thinks in response is so, it's amazing. So what he says is, when have times ever been normal for Jews? Mm. I thought. What is he telling me? To stifle the gift? Does he also believe the gift is from the other side? Then it should be stifled even in normal times. What does it have to do with the Jewish people? And if it's not from the other side, if it's from the master of the universe, why is it less important than what Papa is doing? Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, like he's getting at the heart of it right now. Yes, And it's so true. If you've been given this thing... Either it's one way or the other. It's not something you dabble in. There's no room for dabbling. There's no room to come to the conclusion that you have any right to dabble. If you've been given this office, this vocation, this calling from God, then either it is something worth pursuing because he's given it to you and then you have a responsibility or you don't. And I think that that is something that Asher encapsulates really well. And maybe that feeds into the core virtue that I see in him, which I think is love, Hmm. So when he first comes to Jacob Kahn, his mentor, he actually accuses him of having too much love. He says, you have too much love in your work. And he warns Asher that it will lead to sentimentality in his art, which then sentimentality is the death of all art. But I think what happens in the end is that Asher creates that painting that gets him in so much trouble, not out of a restraint of love, but letting himself crack open with it Hmm. and almost letting you know, the pieces lie where they fall. Like he, bless him, that that last chapter is full of his dread of how things are going to come about because of what he's chosen to do. But I don't think it's a lack of love that he exhibits in the end. I think it is an expression of it that he's chosen to hold come what may. Maybe that's too simplistic an answer. No,
0: that was really beautifully stated. I definitely think you're right that he did that out of love. And I was sad that there was no growth from it from those closest to him because he was expressing something that was very true. And mm-hmm. if only it had been acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I can go into it anymore without giving giving away kind of the ending. Mm-hmm. But that's really beautiful. There was a quote that he had said about his father that reminded me um, when you were talking about fidelity in his, his work. He says, my world of aesthetics was as bewildering to him as his insatiable need for travel was to me. Mm. So, Uh, yeah, so there's this Mm -hmm. parallel, because it is the same thing. He was noticing that my love for art, and that's just who I am, is the same as his dad's his father's love for travel, and it gives Mm -hmm. him life. Mm -hmm. And he can, he can tell that every time he comes back, especially after he's established all these yeshivas um, Mm -hmm. in, in the foreign countries. And I think it gives life to Asher.
1: Yeah, I that was a parallel that really struck me around the Europe segment. Because when he goes to Europe, and we haven't mentioned this yet, but when he goes to Europe, he sees a couple of the shivas that his father has helped to set up or mm-hmm. really is solely responsible for setting up. And he meets these men who are just so thankful to his father. I mean, he's met some of them before, but like these men who are so thankful to his father for like, for giving them purpose and for giving them a space to make these schools. And it's like he's going when he's doing that in Europe, it's like he's going on an exhibition of his father's work. It is like a tour of what his father has accomplished in his life. But this is the kind of work that is fully sanctioned by and upheld by the community that he lives in. His work is not at all like that's not on their radar. Yeah. And I think that contrast is heartbreaking. And maybe that informs some of the different kind of kinds of work that we are called to, to in our lives of faith. Like as a mother, sometimes I think about what is it that my children are going to grow up to do? And I think about how when I was growing up, I was very often counseled to do something in the realm of whatever adult that was talking to me was already in, you know, like, oh, you should become a music teacher. You're doing this well. You should become this. You should, you know, uh, become a professor. That was a big one because my parents are professors. But I also could sense the anxiety surrounding if I became anything else. Nobody knows where that path leads. And when I look at my children, sometimes I, I understand that angst a little bit better now because you don't know. Like, if my daughter really does want to become a biologist, or a scientist in something, like, I don't know where that path will lead for you. I don't know how much pushback you will get in this particular field or in this particular niche of research. And that helps me to understand a little bit more of what Asher's parents are going through, Mm. you know, but also to hold loosely, like, well, there is something this book is saying that I need to be reminded of constantly, which is, How does God commission us? Can I listen for that? Can I trust him to do the guiding on the way? And that he can not only take a person where they need to go, but also nurture and nourish their souls as they do. And maybe that work, maybe the very difficulty of that work will be what ends up shaping their souls into how he intends them to be shaped into the likeness of Christ. Maybe that is the very work that he will use.
0: That's really beautiful. Yeah. It's hard. (laughs) I mean, and God can use anything, right? I always have to go back to that. Join us next time for part two of this interview as we discuss how, even though Asher's community is at odds with his gifting, he still grows in empathy, fidelity, and love. We too can engage with these virtues as spiritual practices at the intersection of our faith and craft. To become more like Christ. You can find a link to Amy's website and articles on this episode's page on our website. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Fiction That Forms Us. To read articles, learn more about this episode's guest, as well as what we've discussed, visit fictionthatformsus.com. Connect with us on social media through Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to those also on our website. This podcast was produced by Rob LaHoda, our theme music is All Flame from the Carolyn Ahrens album, Recognition. Learn more at carolynahrens.com. May God grace us with more of his presence as we learn to fully live in the kingdom of God by aligning our will with God's will. Until next time, Omnia Corda inflamate, set every heart on fire.